something that uh, something that intrigues me, I think, is the um, uh, study of of uh, language and and communication. Um, uh, took a uh, took a hermeneutics class back in. Uh, I think that was over the winter, whenever that was recently. But, but part of that is is uh, kind of examining communication and how that happens within Scripture specifically. But, but naturally, you just start talking about uh, language in general as well, and uh, it, you know, kind of the fact that there's uh, it's almost a living, breathing—not breathing, but it's a living thing at, at times. And and sarcasm, especially within communication, is something that's. I think quite intriguing. Uh, sarcasm is this subtle thing, and and in many ways quite illogical when you think about it. Because I can, I can say a sentence, and and it has a certain meaning. But if I say that exact same sentence, like don't change any words, nothing, it would look the same on the paper. But if I say it with some little bit different voice inflection in a sarcastic way, it can have a completely different meaning totally different meaning. Like, like, for example, if somebody asks me a question and I say, sure, you can. I have faith in them. If they ask me that same question and I say, sure, you can. <laughs> I don't have faith. I mean, same words, nothing different except for voice inflection, yet the meaning is just completely different. You know, it's uh, I, I think it's it's no wonder that young children are, are, are typically not developed enough in their their verbal communication and mental processing to to pick up on the nuances of sarcasm. We've probably all been there. We said something sarcastic to a kid and it just fell flat on its face, right? Because they're just not at that point yet. Um, you know, most likely they took our statement literally, which was the complete opposite of of what we probably intended. Uh, and, and you know, it's just because sarcasm is—it's—it's uh, it's, just—it's usually subtle in nature. Sometimes so subtle that we as adults don't always pick it up, right? I mean, there's times where where we we fail to recognize sarcasm, and you, you know, for as as difficult as that can be verbally, sarcasm can be even more difficult in written form when you don't have that voice inflection and all the other nonverbal cues that go with it. And, you know, if, if you're by nature a sarcastic person, you've, you've probably discovered that th that kind of thing doesn't always translate over, over text messages or emails or things like that, right? Um, so the reason this matters in, in, in this journey through 2 Corinthians is that, that Paul is, uh, he is no stranger to utilizing sarcasm in his letters. Um, there's numerous, exa numerous examples. If you go back through 1 Corinthians, th there's all kinds of examples of sarcasm there. Sometimes, again, because of the subtleties, scholars can debate on whether something is or isn't sarcastic that Paul wrote. Um, again, it, it can be really tough to tell when it's written. In 2 Corinthians, my opinion is that Paul hasn't used too much sarcasm in the first nine chapters of the book. Um, I think things seem to be pretty straightforward. And again, uh, you know, some would disagree and find sarcasm in different points at what Paul writes. Um, but regardless, it, it does seem quite clear that once Paul gets to chapter 10 and he, he starts confronting the false apostles, he brings out a heavy dose of, of written sarcasm. Um, it continued at the beginning of chapter 11, where we were last week, 
And it really kind of comes to a high point in the last half of chapter 11, which we're going to look at this morning. And in fact, I, you know, he lays it on so thick that, that multiple times he kind of stops to point out what he's doing. He kind of makes sure that everybody's tracking with him. He, his talk is so foolish in his mind that, that he wants the church to be fully aware of what he's doing, to make sure that it comes across <laughs> that there's sarcasm that is being employed here. So, so, so let's look and, and, and see what Paul writes. We're in chapter 11 of 2 Corinthians, and we're, uh, we're picking it up where we left off last week. So we are ready for verse 16. So 2 Corinthians 11, verse 16. Paul says, I repeat, let no one think me foolish, but even if you do, accept me as a fool so that I too may boast a little. What I am saying with this boastful confidence, I say not as the Lord would, but as a fool. Since many boast according to the flesh, I too will boast. For you gladly bear with fools, being wise yourselves. But you bear with it, for you bear with it, if someone makes slaves of you, or devours you, or takes advantage of you, or puts on airs, or strikes you in the face, to my shame, I must say, we were too weak for that. Hopefully I was trying to, trying to convey the sarcasm there as I was reading. But, you know, even though it goes against Paul's better judgment, um, he kind of stoops down and engages with the false apostles in their own game, their own game of boasting and who they are, what they've done. Um, you know, they, they, they constantly boasted about themselves in an attempt to make themselves look good. And, and Paul's basically saying, you know, well, church, since you're going to put up with their foolish boasting, I might as well do it too so that you can accept what I have to say. You know, and, and again, Paul knows that this isn't the normal method of communication in his ministry. Um, he even says in verse 17, he's acting in a way opposite of what Jesus would have done. It's kind of fascinating, right? Right? I say not as the Lord would, but I'm talking as a fool. Again, he's, he's using sarcasm here, drawing out what he's about to engage in. Um, and, and I would say that there's, there's two main purposes that Paul has for his sarcasm in this section. The first thing, he's, uh, he's setting up everything that he's going to say in, in the following verses. So when we pick it up and he goes on and starts making all these boastful statements, Paul's setting it up by his use of sarcasm. He, he's going to engage with these false apostles by, by making plenty of boasts about his own ministry. So the sarcasm kind of sets the stage for that. But second, he's, he's, he's wanting to highlight to the church just how foolish they are in accepting these false apostles. Because by their teaching and their actions and their attitudes, these false apostles were really treating the believers quite poorly. And, and, and Paul's wanting them to see that. He's wanting them to pick up on it because these false apostles were making them into slaves. And, and Paul says that devouring them and taking advantage of them. And the church was openly accepting it. And, and, and you know, it's almost like Paul's saying, how can I get you guys to see that? And, and sarcasm is, is one of the, uh, the, the tools that he's using there. It, if the church would simply take a step back and, and objectively examine what was happening, then, 
they'd probably be shocked and surprised. That's what Paul wants them to do here, to really see what these false apostles are doing. Even he goes on in verse 21, it's like, well, I guess I'm just too weak to treat you all in that way. Shame on me, right? I mean, I mean, he's doing what he can to point out what these false apostles are doing. Now, you know, sarcasm in itself, if it's meant, if sarcasm is meant to tear someone down and inflict pain, I don't think that's probably ever befitting of a follower of Jesus. If, if we're using sarcasm in that manner, and it, it definitely can be used in that manner, or it definitely is used in that manner. You know, but as Paul said in chapter 10, uh, specifically, his purpose was not, was, was not to tear the church down, but to build them up. And so he's not using sarcasm here to inflict pain upon the church. He's using sarcasm to, to illuminate truth. That is his goal here. And, and I think Paul's a master of that. You see that throughout his letters. So he's not, not trying to, again, tear them down. He's, he's trying to illuminate truth. And sarcasm used in that way has some great benefit to that. And, and so because he has done that, he's kind of set the stage for what he's going to go on and say here. So let's read through this list of boasts that Paul makes. And remember, we got to think about what would the false apostles have boasted about? You know, when they came into town, when they, you know, brought their speaking and their skills and, and the letters of recommendation, what were they probably boasting about? And let's let that stand in contrast to what Paul boasts about here. So uh, halfway through verse 21. But whatever anyone else dares to boast of, I'm speaking as a fool, I also dare to boast of that. Are they Hebrews? So am I. Are they Israelites? So am I. Are they offspring of Abraham? So am I. Are they servants of Christ? I am a better one, talking like a madman, with far greater labors, far more imprisonments, with countless beatings and often near death. Five times I received at the hands of the Jews the forty lashes less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned, three times I was shipwrecked, a night and a day I was adrift at sea, on frequent journeys, in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, in toil and hardship through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure, and apart from other things, there's the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. Who is weak and I am not weak? Who is made to fall and, and I am not indignant? Quite an odd list of things to boast about, is it not? Has anybody written a boastful list like that in their life? Uh, probably not. But, uh, you know, hardship, suffering, weakness... I, that's the point of, of what Paul's trying to make. He's attempting to draw a stark contrast between himself and these false apostles, and I think he's doing it quite well with this list that he wrote. And so what I want to do this morning is kind of take a maybe a little bit slower and purposeful walk through that list and, and just kind of take a moment to walk a mile in Paul's shoes. Consider what he has gone through 
in his effort to proclaim the gospel message. Because I think as we do that, it, it, it becomes probably both an inspiration and a challenge to us when we, when we really think about what Paul is talking about here. So again, what, you know, what he, uh, well, he began his, he began his lists of boasts by, by drawing attention to this heritage that he had, this Jewish heritage. It was a heritage that considered both of his religious upbringing, his, his training, his education, but also his bloodline. They were both in there. So, so if anyone, if anyone had a claim to, to a, a firm Jewish ancestry and education, then it would have been Paul. But he, what he boasted about was, was so much more than that, so much more than his upbringing. He shows himself really to be an incredible servant of Jesus Christ, an incredible servant of the gospel message about Jesus. You know, the things that Paul experienced in his life and ministry at that point, and there was much more to come after this. There was much more to come after this. It's awe-inspiring, if you think about it. It's awe-inspiring. You know, Paul has, Paul has labored in a great way. Paul's labored in a, in a great way, far greater than, than these false apostles that he's talking about. So if you remember back, Paul supported him. He talked about how he supported himself in his ministry, right? His, his, his uh, missionary journeys that he went on, rather than take support from the churches, he, he, he sought to earn money. Through tent making, he sought to be supported by other churches that, that had, he had already planted. These false apostles never would have dreamed of that. And then on top of that, Paul's been imprisoned. He's been beaten, he says. He was often near death. I mean, and he actually goes in to give us kind of some more detail about those things. He says five times he was, he was beaten or he was whipped by the Jewish leaders. Five times. Now, now in, uh, in Deuteronomy 25, the Jewish law stated that, that 40 lashes was the maximum amount allowed to be given. And, and, and those, those beatings or the, that, that whipping would have been in response to what is considered false teaching or, or blasphemy or, or some kind of serious law-breaking by, by a Jewish person. And so Paul says he's experienced that on five different occasions. Five, I mean, let's let that sink in five times. Five times. So Paul's regular routine when he, when he arrived in a town or in a city is he would go to the Jewish synagogue first. And he would begin proclaiming the gospel there first. And it's clear that because he suffered this Jewish punishment that the, that the Jewish leaders did not accept his teaching. They viewed it as false teaching or as blasphemy. So let's imagine that, you know, the very first time, let's say, Paul, Paul arrives in town, he goes to the synagogue, he proclaims the gospel message to the Jews gathered there, he's, he's condemned by the leaders for false teaching, and he's beaten according to the Jewish law, those 40, 40 lashes uh, minus one. 
the book of Acts tells us then that oftentimes he was kind of driven out of town at that point. And so he would go on to the next town. That happened five times. So that means Paul went to the next town and he went into the synagogue and he again preached the gospel and he again was condemned for false teaching and again was beaten 40 times, minus one. And that all happened again. Five times this happened to Paul. How much love and concern does Paul have to have for the Jewish people to enter the synagogue the second time? and the third time, and the fourth time, and the fifth time, knowing what is going to happen to him, or at least what is highly probable. And that's just at this point in his ministry, so it could have happened again after he wrote this letter. I mean, Paul knew exactly what was likely to happen, and it didn't stop him from preaching the gospel. I mean, what love for the Jewish people and for God himself both. I mean, what love and devotion to continue to go into those Jewish synagogues again and again. And it wasn't just at the hands of the Jews. If you look at verse 25, he talks about being uh, beaten with rods. That was the Roman punishment, being beaten with rods. And, and we have a, a picture in Acts chapter 16 of one of those beatings when Paul was in Philippi. The Roman officials were trying to keep peace in the city by imprisoning Paul and Silas. They beat them as well. I guess the gospel was causing such a stir that, that the officials saw that move as necessary. Well, then eventually Paul and Silas are miraculously freed from prison. Uh, when the officials tried to kind of quietly ask Paul and Silas to leave, they publicly proclaimed that they were beaten even though they were Roman citizens. They were beaten. That, that, was, that was a big no-no. That was a big no-no to beat a Roman citizen. And again, not just once. But three times that had happened. Paul knew. He knew what he was getting himself into. Uh, he talks about being stoned. He was stoned once when the, when the crowd was stirred into an angry mob and attacked him. Uh, three times he talks about being shipwrecked at sea, once being adrift for, night, for a night and a day. And this is a incredible situations that, that sometimes just came upon Paul, but other times Paul put himself in those situations to proclaim the gospel message. And then he goes on from kind of physical beatings, and, and he talks about just general hardships that came from that day and age. Right? He talks about danger uh, on rivers, from robbers, from Jews, from Gentiles, uh, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, at sea, from false brothers. I mean, this is just kind of the danger of travel in that day. You know, when we think about travel today, probably thinking about a road trip in a vehicle that is, that is air-conditioned, right, has cruise control, GPS, maybe a DVD player in the back for the kids. That, that, that's travel today, all right? The biggest worry is, well, where are we going to stretch our legs next? Or how far to the next Chick-fil-A? That's a serious concern when we're traveling, isn't it? That, that's not travel in Paul's day. I mean, not at all. Travel was dangerous. It was, it was uncertain. It was, it was very difficult in Paul's day. 
it would have been so much easier for Paul to just kind of stay home or maybe even settle down at a church, go plant one church and just kind of stay there. It would have been easier for Paul to have done that. There would have been much less danger and turmoil that he would have faced. But again, because of his love for people and for Jesus, Paul faced the dangers of travel and he sought to take the gospel to unreached places. And then he ended by, by talking about uh, kind of personal sacrifices he had made. He talks about laboring and toil and in hardship. He talks about sleepless nights. You know, whether that was because of external danger or, or just internal unrest, you know, we're not really told. I would imagine it's probably both. Uh, you know, Paul says he faced hunger, he faced thirst, um, coldness and exposure. So, you know, literally nakedness he faced. I mean, that, Again, this is a time when a person didn't travel with a suitcase of all kinds of extra clothes with them. When Paul was, was beaten and whipped, his clothes were probably ripped from him either before or during that ordeal. And so he, you know, when he says he experienced nakedness, he's being honest there. I'm sure his clothes were, were torn from him on multiple occasions. And then he says on top of all of that, he had this daily pressure of anxiety for all the churches. Uh, the, the health and, and, and the growth of not just the church in Corinth, but all the churches that he had planted, that weighed upon him. Doesn't that sound like a pleasant life, everything that Paul lists there? Man, and yet he's boasting about it, right? I mean, he's saying, well, if they're going to boast, I'm going to boast about this. Uh, he really was a fool, wasn't he? I mean, he says, I'm, I'm, I'm acting like a fool talking like this. And we might say, man, yeah, <laughs> that's, that's, that's crazy. Uh, a fool for Jesus, I guess, is probably the best way to describe it. And yet, I, it, it wasn't even that Paul was boasting in the fact that he survived all of those things or that he endured all of those things because he's such a tough guy and he's a, he's a better apostle than these other apostles. Paul's intention in all of this is to highlight his weakness, not his strength. That's his intention with this entire thing. And, and, you, and he reinforces that at the very end. Now, let's look at the last few verses of the chapter. Verse 30. If I must boast, I will boast of the things that show my weakness. The God and Father of the Lord Jesus, who is blessed forever, knows that I am not lying. At Damascus... The governor under King Aretas was guarding the city of Damascus in order to seize me, but I was let down in a basket through a window in the wall and escaped his hands. So, so Paul ends this list of boasts by talking about really a humiliating story where he fled from the city with his tail between his legs by being lowered down through a basket, in a basket through a window in the city wall. I, that, that's not exactly a story a person tells when they're trying to act like a tough guy, when they're trying to build themselves up. Paul says, I, I, you know, I, I fled from this city. I was secretly let down in a basket so I could sneak away at night. Uh, Paul's boasting rested firmly upon the power of God being shown in his weakness. It, it's true in this list that he gives. It's been true the entire letter thus far. It's going to continue to be the theme next week as we get to chapter 12. Uh, Paul wants God's power to be shown through him. 
And he talks about how that's done best through his weakness. I mean, he, he walked a very difficult road in weakness so that God's power would be shown and the gospel message would be proclaimed. So when I read that list, you know, all the hardships that Paul has faced, I can't, I can't help but find myself wanting to ask him one question. Why didn't you stop? I mean, five times being whipped, three times being beaten. Like, why didn't you stop? You know, what, why press on again and again and again and again and again through all of that? I think that we can ask Paul that question. I think that as we read Paul's words to the church in Philippi, who was a, that was a church that saw him beaten one of those times with Roman rods, I think we can find out why Paul pressed on in the midst of all of that. So I just want to read a little bit from Philippians chapter 3, starting in verse 8. Paul says, Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection, and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Not that I have already obtained this, or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own, because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. You know, Paul doesn't list the sufferings and, and, and the things that he considers worthless and what he has left behind. He doesn't list them here, but, but he does in 2 Corinthians. He walked the road of suffering because God was the most precious thing to him. Everything else was rubbish. Everything else was worthless. He, he left everything else behind. His, his focus was on that day when he received the upward call of God, as he says. The upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Everything else was rubbish compared to that. So the question then I guess we ought to ask ourselves, I ought to ask myself, is do I consider everything rubbish compared to gaining Christ? And then as we ponder that question, I, I, I think we ought to consider how we apply that as American Christians. Because so I think it can be tricky as American Christians. Our, our country is one that is founded upon uh, the rights of, of the individual, the rights of all individuals. Our country is founded upon that. Uh, our Declaration of Independence contains the famous words that speak to that, right? We hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. 
We've heard that many times, right? Those, those, are, those are famous, famous words. They should be. They're in our Declaration of Independence. The, the, those are some words that, that light a fire within a person when they feel that those God-given rights are being taken away from them. I mean, those words lit the very fire that burned within our nation as they fought for independence from England. I think it begs the question, what exactly is an unalienable right or inalienable right? Those two words are, are, uh, are essentially interchangeable. What is an inalienable right? Because that's something different than an alienable right. We may not know off top of our head what the difference is, but we would guess there probably is a difference between alienable and inalienable. So an alienable right is a right that can be transferred to someone else. An inalienable right cannot. So, for example, this red shirt that I'm wearing, my, my, my right to this shirt is alienable. I purchased this shirt, and so I possess the rights to it. Now, if you came to me after the service today and said, Aaron, I love that shirt. I want to buy it from you. I'm going to make you an offer that you cannot refuse then I probably wouldn't refuse it. And in that transaction, the rights of the shirt become yours. They are alienable rights. They are transferred along with that transaction. An inalienable right cannot be transferred. And, and in terms of the, of the Declaration of Independence, it states our inalienable rights are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, and that they are inalienable because God gave them to us. They come from God himself. We don't have the right to transfer those away from ourselves. And consequently, then, without just cause, like you know, us murdering someone and taking away their right to life, our rights cannot be taken away from us. So they weren't given by the state, so the state can't take them away. That's essentially what the Declaration of Independence is saying. Those rights came from God. The state does not have the right to remove them from a person. So as Americans, we read that statement in the Declaration and we hold fast to it, don't we? I mean, we bring it out anytime we feel like the government's infringing on, our, on those inalienable rights and, and our goal can be, quickly, can become the preservation of those rights. It can become the highest ideal for which we strive. And we are not out of bounds in thinking that way as an American, right? As an American, we are entitled to think that way. But as a Christian, how ought we think about those inalienable rights? Should my highest focus be upon the preservation of my rights or something else? You know, when we, when we look at the example of, of Jesus, I think we see someone who strove to lay down his rights rather than preserve them at all costs. Uh, Philippians chapter 2 makes a, paints a perfect picture of that. Uh, like when we look at the example of Paul, we see someone who strove to lay down his rights rather than preserve them at all costs. I mean, three times Paul, a Roman citizen, was beaten with rods. Three times Paul could have said, Roman citizen, and, and probably had that beating stopped. But he didn't. He didn't. And, and, and what really stands out to me in that passage in 2 Corinthians is 
that, that list of suffering which, which Paul wrote about, I think we can clearly see all three of those inalienable rights that our declaration highlights. We can see them all in there. Paul talks about all of those. He, he laid down his right to life when he, when he put himself in position to be beaten because of his proclamation of the gospel. And Paul laid down his right to liberty uh, or freedom by, by subjecting himself to the inherent dangers of traveling in order to proclaim the gospel. He, 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 he laid down his, his right to the pursuit of happiness by sacrificing his physical, uh, his, his physical, emotional, mental health, again, in proclamation of the gospel. You know, according to our own Declaration of Independence, those were Paul's God-given rights. And yet, Paul's highest focus wasn't on preserving them. It was on laying them down for the sake of the gospel message, for the sake of Jesus Christ. Now, in saying all that, I, I want to make sure this morning that I'm not, that I'm not denigrating those who serve in, in public office or, or participate in our judicial system or who have fought in the military or, or, or anyone else who, who works in a way to uphold those rights according to uh, those founding documents. I think it is honorable to live in such a way as to protect those rights for others. It is honorable. But what we're talking about this morning isn't other people's rights. What we're talking about is my rights and your rights, what I do with my rights, what you do with your rights. Should you have those rights? Yes, you should. They're God-given. But what do we do with them? when we have them. You know, Paul could have hung on to him. He could have hung on to them with all his might and pursued what was best for his own life and his own liberty and his own happiness. He, he could have done that. That was his right, right? As Americans, were ingrained to view those rights in that way. But again, Paul considered those things rubbish. He considered them worthless for the sake of gaining Christ. That's why he went back into the synagogues again and again and again. That's why he boarded ships to foreign lands again and again. That's why he uh, shouldered that, that daily anxiety of caring for all of these churches. He saw his own rights not as something to be preserved at all costs. He saw them as something that could be laid down in service of both God and people. I would say that that's one of the major differences between Paul and the false apostles. That's one of the major differences. The, the false apostles lived first and foremost for themselves. Paul obviously didn't. He sacrificed himself in order to see the gospel spread across the world. And consequently then, I would say Paul was the one who received that upward call of God that he talked about. Paul was the one who would hear God say, well done, good and faithful servant. So I think, we, I think we thank God for the incredible rights that we've been given by him. I, I think we thank those who have given so much to give us and ensure that we have those rights. I think that we ensure that others are able to experience those rights in their own lives. But when it comes to what I do with my right then, my highest goal shouldn't be the protection of my own right. 
Instead, I ought to view them as, as worthless, as Paul would say, and lay them down at the feet of Christ. Lay them down in order to pursue that higher calling of proclaiming Christ in our world. That's tricky as an American Christian, isn't it? I mean, that's a, that's a tricky, tricky thing. But again, it's, you know, rights endowed by our creator. They're a wonderful gift. I mean, we, we, we've, we sang songs about, uh, even this morning, about how Christ has set us free, and, and we can't look past the spiritual implications of that, that Christ has set us free from, um, from sin. And so we are free indeed. But what do we then do with that freedom, that physical freedom, that, or that spiritual freedom, that, that national freedom, that, that physical freedom? What do we do with that? You know, Jesus laid it down for us. Paul laid it down for those that he was serving. He laid it down for Christ. Will we do that as well? Will we lay that down for the sake of others? I think that's the challenge for us this morning. Would you stand with me? Let's, let's close in prayer and ask God to lead us in that way. Heavenly Father, we come to you and, and first we, we give you thanks for, for what you have given to us. God, we thank you for how you work in our lives. We thank you for the uh, the freedom that we can experience, the freedom that we can experience as, as Christians, freedom from sin, freedom from slavery to our sinful nature. God, we thank you for freedoms that we can experience as an American Christian. God, the freedoms that we have as a citizen of this country, and, 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 and we praise you for that. God, would you guide us in how to view it and how to understand that and how to walk in those freedoms. God, may they not become our idol. We want to worship you and you alone. And would you, would you lead us and guide us in that, not just in an election season, and not just as it pertains to politics, but, but in every moment of our lives and in every situation of our lives. God, may we have this attitude of Paul that we're willing to lay it all down. For your sake, lay it all down for the sake of others. We want to see the gospel proclaimed. And God, so would you guide us in that? Would you show us how our freedoms might be a tool that can be used to proclaim the gospel message? God, we give you praise. We're, we're here to, to worship you this morning. We thank you for your love for us. We thank you for how you laid yourself down on the cross for us. And it's in your name that we pray. Amen.